I had a great conversation with Michelle Mills, CEO of the Colorado Rural Health Center. She explains the perfect storm that has been brewing, which has forced the closure of so many rural hospitals across the country. And she also discusses the steps we need to take to save the remaining systems. She's very knowledgeable and she provided a lot of insight. It's time for the Healthcare Huddle, simplifying the business of healthcare. Presented by Encompass Medical, devoted to helping organizations succeed with customized medical practice management services. Visit EncompassMedical.com today. Now, here's your host, Michael Zerbis. I'm very happy to have Michelle Mills join the show today. Michelle is the CEO of the Colorado Rural Health Center. The Colorado Rural Health Center works with federal, state, and local partners to offer services and resources to rural health providers, facilities, and communities. So it's a pretty big scope. And the charter is pretty extensive. And as one of only three nonprofit rural health offices in the country, Michelle has, I think, a very unique and all-encompassing perspective about the challenges and opportunities in rural health. Michelle, I know you're busy, <laughs> and so thanks for taking the time today. Yeah, thanks, Michael, for having me. Appreciate it. Of course. My thought, the first thing that we might do would be for you to kind of explain to our listeners what that means in terms of offering services and resources and give them a better understanding of what your rural health center does, but maybe also give them an understanding of what rural health centers are due in each state. Sure, you bet. So like you said, Michael, there's a state office of rural health in every state. And so Colorado is set up a little bit unique in, in that we are set up as a nonprofit versus being part of a the state or a university system. And what that does for us is it allows us to be able to have policy be a part of our efforts that we do at the Rural Health Center. So state offices of rural health really reach out to all rural counties in the state to be able to offer assistance to them. And so that assistance is primarily to hospitals and clinics, but it also includes public health and then the community at large. And so we offer out anything from, you know, helping them interpret rules and regulations to making connection to services, to offering programs and information that really help them do their jobs. Like I said, a big charter. You know, you had mentioned there that one of the advantages of being a nonprofit is that policy can be within your scope, right? But what's a disadvantage to being the nonprofit? <laughs> Yeah, there's always an advantage and a disadvantage, right? <laughs> so the uh, disadvantage is, is that as a nonprofit, we run just like any other nonprofit, meaning that we have to find funding and and make money to be able to stay open to serve our mission. So most state offices of rural health receive estate appropriations, so mm -hmm. they don't have to worry about things like fee-for-service and, and stuff like that like we do. How much of your time do you think you spend working on the revenue side, securing funds, chasing dollars, trying to keep the enterprise 
a float so that you can do the broad scope and big charter work that you guys do. Yeah, it's a lot of time. I don't know, maybe 20, 30%, something like that. If you take into account writing grants and, and even more, if you take into account to, you know, keeping those conversations up with, with foundations and state partners and, you know, and, and others that we, that we try to seek some revenue to be able to serve our mission. Yeah, that's, I would, I would, I was thinking 30 or 40% of your time, probably just having played in the nonprofit world. I know how hard that is. You know, I would be thinking about your charter specifically and your, your viewpoint, your perspective as it relates to this explosion, for lack of a better word, of telehealth that we've seen as a result of the pandemic. And I'm kind of curious to see what you think about that. Have you seen the same kind of rapid and maybe almost exponential implementation of that as a result of the pandemic? Has that already been kind of pushing forward and in rural health environments? Give me give me your perspective on that, that telehealth component. Yeah, telehealth is uh, definitely picked up since COVID hit. You know, prior to COVID, clinics, rural health clinics and critical access hospitals were working on initiatives to to try to bring that up, but definitely with COVID that accelerated it. We have some regulation issues that thanks to the pandemic have been reduced that allows an uptick for that telehealth to happen. But, you know, we weren't able to provide that direct primary care from our rural health clinic out to the patient. It was primarily the patient would come into the clinic and then there would be telehealth that would exist between the patient connecting to like a specialist, for example. And then when the sure. when the pandemic happened, we were able to offer that direct care right from the clinic primary care out to the patient. So that that's very different than how it was before. And again, we weren't able to do that because of regulation restrictions around the rural health clinics. And so it was like kind of starting from ground zero to be able to get up to speed with that. And, uh, you know, that involved things like equipment, you know, making sure that people felt comfortable in having those conversations in our state. We were able to do, do telehealth by telephone which was was great. So we didn't have to bring up the video portion of it. But there's uh, definitely problems such as broadband access or or adoption of, of telehealth in terms of behavior change, both on the patient and the provider side. So you had mentioned that there was some regulatory hurdles to get over. Was that primarily reimbursement challenges or were there other hurdles that were either lowered or removed that allowed this rapid adoption? Yeah, well, it was a payment, but even furthermore, it was a regulation that was suspended that allows rural health clinics now to offer that primary care via telehealth and be reimbursed for it. So prior to that, they weren't able to offer it. Why was that prohibition in place in the first place? I'm not, <laughs> That's a great I'm question. Sure. I think it's because really the rules and the regulations for, for rural health clinics have barely been updated since they were implemented back in the late 70s. And so they really haven't kept up with the times in terms of this is the way that, you know, that people want to seek care now. 
And you had mentioned two other challenges, which is the ability to access broadband. That sounds to those of us who work and live in either urban or suburban environments, that seems probably not even to be in our radar, but that's a big deal out there, right? Because it's, it's either not available or it's not fast enough or wide enough to allow for the the data. Is that the issue? Yeah. So broadband access is definitely a part of the issue. And so if you think about, you know, the clinic and the hospital might have adequate speeds to be able to to do telehealth, but that doesn't mean that somebody who's, you know, clear up in the mountains or maybe down in the valley or the plains have that same broadband speed access. So that makes the video portion of it very difficult just because of the lack of speed. And then if you talk about, you know, especially during the pandemic with uh, more people working at home and kids being, you know, having school through home (laughs) virtually. And so that's taking up more broadband speed as well. Therefore, you know, kind of diminishing what's what's widely available. But, you know, I think some of the great things is this really has elevated that conversation to allow people to understand that, you know, having that connectivity is just so vital to our day-to-day life nowadays. It is. And it's interesting, you know, we're talking about rural healthcare and we're talking about broadband infrastructure in the United States. And it's like, wow, we think we have a simple solution and then it's attached to a pretty big lift. Right. Yeah. And that seems to be the case in rural healthcare that it's never just one thing. It's always threaded or attached to many other infrastructure issues. I don't know if your perspective is the same on that, but this is just one example of many that I've encountered in my healthcare career in rural environments. Encompass Healthcare Data Solution focuses on collecting the maximum from your revenue cycle. The revenue cycle management team regularly performs top 10% of outsourced billing companies with a clean claims rate of 98.05%, a zero pay denial rate of 0.015%, and average days in AR of less than 24 days. Your practice could go back to focusing on providing quality healthcare to your patients without the nagging concern of leaving real dollars on the table. Encompass's revenue cycle management solution provides unparalleled visibility and control into your revenues by providing a comprehensive dashboard and reporting system. The same reporting and dashboard system that the Encompass team uses to manage itself. Like most other revenue cycle vendors, Encompass only gets paid on net collections. Unlike other companies, they have a highly developed and unique denials management system that helps to ensure that your practice gets every penny that you've earned. For more information, go to EncompassHDS.com, select Revenue Cycle Management, and click Learn More to schedule your discovery call today. I think that there's a pretty big trend where a lot of people are leaving the cities and because of the pandemic. And I'm wondering if you think that might have an impact on our ability to recruit to rural environments as people seek to get away from congested urban environments? Or do you think the problems 
going to exist of that recruitment problem regardless. Yeah, I think the recruitment problem is still definitely going to exist. But but I think, like you said, having more people start to move out to rural communities is hopefully going to help continue to raise the awareness. So that way we can find some solutions to, you know, what might work uh, for our rural communities, especially in terms of, of workforce. And, you know, we have a aging population, which includes an aging population of our providers as well. And so, you know, I only see that getting worse, unfortunately. And I've noticed that the very providers uh, that we don't want to leave the workforce who've got 30 years of experience under their belt are tending to throw up their hands in the face of what they feel is increased regulations and hurdles. And it's those highly uh, experienced and educated and practiced practitioners that are saying, you know what, leave it to the next generation, but we don't have the next generation necessarily right. migrating in the same way. Is, am I thinking about that right? Yeah. Or am I, I think, over-catastrophizing? I think, yeah, you definitely are. It's, yeah, it's such a crisis, but as, you know, as our providers, like you said, that have, you know, 30 or more years start retiring, not only is it a problem of the lack of workforce, but then, you know, it's just a problem with continuity of care as well. So, you know, not everything can be done via telehealth and, and we really need more people to, you know, be interested in rural health and we need more of a focus on it and, and a drive that, that will help build that pipeline for people to go out to rural. And I think there's some really great reasons as to why people would want to practice rural medicine. You know, they have a broader scope. They're able to serve people that are from, you know, birth to to death, and they really get to develop a relationship with folks. And when you're in an urban location, that's just not necessarily the case. It really is. And I think you made a great point. And it kind of leads me to this next topic about rural health that I've been thinking about is, you know, t- we talked about it in telehealth specifically as it relates to, you know, there's these changing models of care delivery. And telehealth is one of them. And I'm wondering if you've seen or are aware of any other initiatives of changing the delivery of that care in rural health environments, or is that model pretty much the same And really telehealth is all that they're doing to adapt to this kind of brave new world we're living in? (laughs) That's a great question. I don't know that I have a great answer for it, but telehealth, I think, is definitely emerging. But I think also, you know, things that have come out maybe the last 10 to 15 years around community paramedicine and, you know, and and folks going out, specifically paramedics going out to people's home to help take vitals and, you know, really ensure that there's that continuity of care for them when maybe they don't have to come in and that helps keep uh, patients out of the hospital and reduce readmissions. But it's pretty hard to implement and it's, you know, and it's costly, but it definitely is an avenue that can um, potentially help. It's interesting that you said that, Michelle. When I was on Whidbey Island working in a rural health system, we were trying to implement that and have our paramedics also going out and assessing for, you know, fall risk yep. and all those other social determinants of health, you know, or is there food in the cupboard? Is there all sorts of different things? And when it worked, it was amazing, but it was hard to get to work and it was hard to do it 
cost efficiently. But I think there is some traction there. I think that there's a good opportunity there. And it's interesting to me that, you know, as you talk about the recruitment problem, obviously there's always the trailing spouse problem, but also some of the same issues of infrastructure. It's like, you know, if you're a well-educated medical professional and you can't get a good school or you can't get broadband access, that's a deterrent. And at the same time, it also deterrent to recruiting them. And it's also at the same time a deterrent for the patient to be able to be seen. And so it's all woven together into this, you know, where do you start? Where do you start, right? What's the first thing? And so I've also seen where there's less of a of a hospital focus and more of a outpatient facility type focus and not so much the old hub and spoke model, but more independent medical centers, for lack of a better term, that can allow an NP maybe to go into the home and do home visits. And we're back all the way back to the 50s, right? Have you seen any of that in Colorado? (laughs) We've actually had somewhat of a trend of where we had quite a few independent rural health clinics probably 10 years or so ago that have transitioned more over to provider-based clinic, meaning that the hospital owns and operates the clinics and the providers that are on staff are actually, you know, on staff of the hospital system, for example. And a part of that, I think, is because what you were talking about earlier is just the administrative burden that continues to be accelerated year after year really deters people from trying to open their own practice and or to be able to really be successful in in a practice because people went into practice to help people not to do paperwork. <laughs> yeah. Or to worry about insurance yes. and how to code this so that the uh, you know it's it's going to be paid correctly and it's it's ridiculous. Crazy, you know, but I will say that you know, one of the one of the super great things about rural health care is that everybody really works together in in the community to help make sure things are taken care of. And and so, you know, I mean, we are much more able to see, for example, if if somebody is homeless and, you know, and they their diabetes keeps getting out of control, there's solutions that can be worked on at a community level to try and um, solve that problem, which is great because it's community people helping community people. I agree with you. And it seems to me all too often is that legislation with the best intention often has numerous and unintended consequences deleterious to the, the rural environment, you know, because they can't do the legislation. Well, maybe they could with a fine enough instrument to understand the differences in how care needs to be delivered and where the resources are or not. And from a regulatory standpoint, do you think that these prohibitions on telehealth that have been repealed will stay repealed? That that was the impetus? Do you think there's enough uh, energy around that to, or do you think it'll go back uh, to the way it was? Well, I really, I hope it doesn't go back to the way it it was. (laughs) And I think there's a lot of energy and a lot of organizations like ours, as well as, you know, national organizations that are really fighting to try to, to keep some of the regulation reductions in place going forward, just because of, you know, how helpful they've been. Yeah, I hope so too. 
Do you have an opinion or have you seen the chart initiative by CMS rolled out in Colorado? Have you seen the results of that or do you know anybody that's in, involved in the pilots or... Yeah, we don't know that anybody in Colorado plans on applying. And partially that's because it was such a low amount of funding available, not that there wasn't opportunity to do things. But I think when Pennsylvania implemented theirs, it cost something like $25 million to implement their model. And and the chart model was offering $5 million. And it's just not enough to really try and work on everything you need to work on to to try and change. I think there uh, is an appetite by people to want to really look into different ways that and and different models that work in different communities, but I don't I don't know that that's going to be the way. It's interesting to me because it's not only that there's not enough dollars to to give you a common sense return on investment. There's also an opportunity cost of working on that versus something else. Yep. Right. Yep. And so you have to be sure that there'll also be some significant long-term benefits and return on that investment. And that's hard to predict, you know, depending <laughs> on, on what legislation is passed year to year or what decisions are made. And so I think that also has a chilling effect on people's desire to initiate or engage in these large scale projects. Cause it's like, you know, two years from now, maybe this won't be the flavor and it'll be something else. Definitely. You know, we were anticipating that chart model to come out, but we were thinking it was going to come out more like the other CMS initiatives where it was, you know, something like 60, 70 million that you could apply for, which would really allow for a lot of innovation to happen. And, you know, Colorado is I like to think is unique, but I'm sure other states would probably disagree with me. But, you know, I mean, we have the we have the Eastern Plains, which op- their hospitals and communities operate very differently than the Western Slope. And we also yeah. have resort communities and we have a lot of tourism here in Colorado and we have a lot of farms. And so there's just different answers. It's not like one solution is going to fit every single community. And so I I hope over time that CMS will continue to hear that and be able to really reward that with some innovation opportunities that are viable. Encompass Healthcare Data Solutions is devoted to helping healthcare organizations succeed with a complete menu of customizable practice management services. The expense management division of Encompass has maintained a 100% success rate of reducing expenses for hundreds of practices by an average of 20% over the past 20 years. Imagine what your practice could do with an extra 50 to 100K per year. Could you hire new staff, purchase capital equipment, give raises and bonuses? Encompass will help your practice reduce expenses and improve your bottom line. The best part is that Encompass will show you how to achieve significant savings without changing vendors or products or disrupting your day-to-day activities. The expense management program utilizes a contingency-based compensation model. Their only compensation is 50% of the actual verified monthly savings. Plus, Encompass guarantees that their work will not involve any more than eight hours per year of your staff's valuable time. Encompass even offers a $25,000 savings guarantee. Sleep better at night knowing that Encompass is monitoring your vendors each month to ensure that you are getting the best possible prices. 
For more information, go to EncompassHDS.com, select Expense Management Program, and click the Learn More button to schedule your discovery call. From your lips to Washington's ears, I agree with you. It's much needed, and I think I agree with you. From my limited perch, I see an appetite for it also. And But one could also say that you know there was this this idea of doing the Medicare expansion and more than a few states chose not to engage in that. And what I've seen is that there's a correlation statistically significant, at least in my untrained eye, that many of the states with the most failing hospitals also are states that did not decide to opt into the Medicare expansion program. I don't know. Have you seen that same correlation or am I just looking at numbers and charts and and getting looped? (laughs) No, you're absolutely right. The states that did not expand Medicaid definitely have have it worse than than the states that that didn't. And in fact, when you look at some of those maps that the Chartist Group comes out with, it, it really does show that those are the states that have the most hospital closures and in Colorado, we've been so fortunate to not have any rural hospital closures. And and I really do believe in part that's because of expansion of Medicaid. I agree with you. And and you can take a look at those charts too. And, and if you drill down even a little bit deeper and start to look at what they consider at-risk hospitals, yep. they're clustered in the same way as the closed hospitals. And so there's a there's a pipeline, I think, of problems that we still haven't dealt with that are still on their way to us as a result of this. Yep. And it's interesting to me, but it's also sad because I'm going to be interested to look at over the course of 10 years, what happened to those people Yep. and how many people didn't get care, how many people you know, didn't get the right care at the right time. And do we see changes in morbidity or mortality? I hope that that won't be, but my my fear is that we'll also see that over time. Yeah, I think you're right. And, and I think even with the effects of, of COVID as well, you know, we saw, you know, people not not seeking care. And I, I think we don't even know what the implications of that are going to be. I think there's also going to be further financial implications for our rural hospitals and, and rural clinics after you know, everything settles with COVID. And, you know, I mean, people have money now that came from the CARES Act, which is great. But when you have about 70% of your revenue come from your provider-based rural health clinic, and then all of a sudden you go down to zero for, you know, several months, and then you start to gradually see care come back, you know, that's, that is still not at the level that it was prior to COVID, that's going to have a lasting effect. And, you know, I, I really just hope that people recognize that, you know, both at the state and the federal level to, to be able to offer some solutions that, you know, we can be innovative and work to create the infrastructure that allows our rural clinics and hospitals to really thrive because we serve definitely an older, sicker, <laughs> poorer population. And, you know, there's no reason why people need to be driving two or three hours to seek care. That's crazy. Agreed. And, you know, the other thing that people maybe don't think about is that oftentimes a hospital or a system in a rural community is the largest employer. Yes. 
and they're driving many jobs and many high paying jobs or good paying jobs that feed the town or the community or that city. And so if that hospital goes away, there's another unintended economic consequence independent of all the healthcare problems. And I just feel like I'm not sure why it's so hard to create the attention and maybe it's that the rural health yeah, don't it, have enough. <laughs> it's a, it's a great question. You, you are right. You know, I feel like so many people over the years have, you know, continued to, you know, shout those, those things from the rooftop, you know, just how rural health is the infrastructure and, and the viability of a rural community. And you're exactly right. When, when a rural hospital goes away, it's not just the, access to care that goes away. It's the jobs that go away. It's the, you know, people that leave the town. It's the small businesses that close and aren't able to remain open and or they go to other towns to be able to have a better thriving business and and life. And that's just really sad to see when, when you once saw a thriving community and then you drive down a main street and you see you know, things boarded up. It's very sobering. It's analogous to, you know, the old trope, you know, when the mill closed, yes. right? It's it's the same thing. A town withers and dies then. And and I'm curious on a personal level, what what's the hardest part for you of your job? The scope is so big, the charter is big, and the need is even bigger. On a personal level, what what's the hardest part? <laughs> oh gosh, I love my job so much, and I feel so so fortunate for sure to be able to to help. I think the hardest part is really that I always wish we could be doing more and more more of everything. You know that would that would really help all of our rural communities survive and and thrive. And there's just not enough of us and not enough money available to to do all that, and so that. You know, that feels a little defeating sometimes, but, but I know at the end of the day that our, you know, our rural communities really appreciate us and appreciate what we do. And, and so fortunate and lucky to have an amazing staff that, that I get to work with every day that uh, really believes in our mission. And so I really have no need to complain. Yeah. And certainly not a complaint, but just the, you know, it's, it's, I bring it up because for many in healthcare, what you just articulated is the central challenge is most people in healthcare are doing the work that they're doing because there's an intrinsic desire to help. And the flip side of that is an inability to help as many as you want to be able to help. And to some degree, we're all powerless to affect the change that we so readily see to, to be able to widen that, that safety net and that help. And so I, I don't hear it as complaining. I hear it as, you know, a resonating challenge that everybody in healthcare faces. And whether it's a provider on the front line, there's a danger too of, of that desire to help everybody and do more can lead to burnout, right? Yep. And then ultimately we lose some of our best leaders because they're exhausted by the fight. And that's another challenge I think that rural health has is that if we don't provide solution sets and ways and opportunities to fix and grow and adapt and innovate, we lose, we have a brain drain um, of our best leaders in whatever capacity they're leading. 
finally saying, I can't shovel against the ocean anymore. Right. Right. Do you see that? <laughs> yes. And boy, has has the pandemic exasperated that for sure. People yeah. are are tired and they're burned out and they're, you know, and they have such a connection to their community that these are real people that that they're seeing that they that they know they're their friends and families and neighbors and i think that's just very taxing on on people and i think you know we're gonna definitely be facing a huge mental health crisis you know we probably are now it's just not rearing it's it's ugly head as as much as it probably will once once the dust settles a little bit here and we get uh, better control on the pandemic, but I, I think there's going to need to be a lot of resources put there into into supporting everybody, and that's not just the the doctors and the nurses and the lab techs, but that's the you know people that are the you know house housekeeping staff and the administrators and really everybody. These things seem to have a tale to them. You know, the pandemic has this tale that you just described of mental health that we're going to deal with. Our lack of allocation of resources to rural environments are creating, in my opinion, health deserts, just like we have food deserts in urban environments where no grocery stores are. Yes. And the sense is sometimes I think that, well, I, I can't see it and it's not a problem for me. And so I don't have to worry about it. But you know, I think most people don't understand the volume of patients that are classified as rural health, the amount of admissions that happen in a rural health environment. And if those resources go away, the people don't. They have to go somewhere, right? right? So we can deal with this problem today or we can wait and deal with it when it's worse and harder and more expensive to fix. And so I need you on that policy side to get out there and fix this, <laughs> Michelle. <laughs> I'm tired of worrying about it. Yes, we definitely have that on our radar to try to be working about, and you know, and I, I really neglected to mention our children, and and I, I really think they're such a important part of our of our community as well, and you know, I, I think we don't even know what kind of mental health effects this pandemic has had on them to you know, to be stuck at homeschool and, you know, and not with their, not with their friends or other family members as well. And so I, I think we definitely need some huge policy efforts towards, towards providing resources. And I think telehealth is going to help with that in our rural communities to make sure that people can get the care they needed and not feel stigmatized by it in terms of having to go in and show up at a at a location because nobody wants to be judged for that. And I think that's some other behavior change that we just need to change on a national basis. I think you're right. Well, um, I'm looking at the clock and realized I've kept you past the 30 minutes. There's a lot in your head and I want to get it out for everybody. But I want to thank you for donating your knowledge and your time today. And if anybody wants more information or wishes to learn more about rural health, they can contact Michelle at info at C-O-R-U-R-A-L-Health.org. So that's C-O-RuralHealth.org, and that's all one word. And Or they can visit the website at C-O-RuralHealth.org. Michelle, thanks so much for your time, and I hope you'll come back and we can kind of revisit and see what progress we've made. That sounds great. Thank you so much, Michael. I really appreciate it. 
All right. Have a great day. You too. Take care. In talking with Michelle today, it got me to thinking. With the closure of so many rural health hospitals, health deserts are being created throughout our rural health network. This is analogous to the food deserts we see in our urban environments. The numbers are alarming. Since 2010 through 2019, 120 rural hospitals have closed, an average of 13 a year. In 2019, 19 rural hospitals closed alone. And I'm thinking 2020, given the current conditions we're dealing with, will be just as bad or maybe worse. And to put these numbers in a bit of context, there are approximately 1,844 rural hospitals in the country. And one study deems that 453 of these are vulnerable to closure. That is close to 25% of the total. 25% of our rural hospitals are going to potentially close. And these 1,844 hospitals represent approximately 30% of the hospital beds in the United States, and they provide close to 11 million admissions annually. That's a big bite of our total healthcare system. So why is this happening? We have a perfect storm of regulatory inflexibility, political gamesmanship, and a one-size-fits-all mentality relative to reimbursement. There is a high correlation between the at-risk hospitals operating in states that have elected to not adopt the Medicare expansion program. Less dollars mean greater risks. CMS often enacts rules to solve one problem that have unintended consequences in other areas. A perfect example of this is the rule to curtail multiple tests in one day to prevent artificial inflation or churning of charges. This makes perfect sense in an urban environment. But in a rural environment, where patients often must travel great distances and as a result take time off from work to make that appointment, this is maladaptive and ultimately discourages patients from getting the diagnostic care they need. Additionally, there's been a lack of emphasis on the social determinants of health. And because rural populations skew older, less healthy, and less wealthy, not focusing on early intervention guarantees the individual's health problems grow to become more intractable over time. Rural hospital boards often lack the healthcare experience to govern C-suite executives. In an unfettered environment, bad actors can do great damage. Surprisingly, slow or no broadband access decreases or eliminates the ability to deliver telehealth. And as the pandemic has shown us, telehealth is a great way to stay connected with patients at a fraction of the cost. So I have a modest proposal. CMS needs to collect data from those rural hospitals that are thriving and distill common best practices found in those winners, then incentivize those behaviors for all rural hospitals. We need to redesign rural hospital C-suite comp so that much more of it is tied to hospital performance and less is embedded in a contractual base. Variable comp encourages innovation and performance and base comp discourages the same. We need to incentivize at-home visits by mid-level practitioners. Delivering care to where it is needed helps reduce skipped visits and allows for on-site evaluation of those social determinants of health. And finally, here's a big one, the moonshot. We need to invest in rural broadband and then encourage telehealth adoption and reimbursement. Unless we think this is not our problem because we live in urban or suburban environments, 
We should remember that our rural hospitals serve 60 million people within their catchment areas. In the long run, we will pay in one form or another to help our sick neighbors. The choice we have is when. Studies show that when rural hospitals close, average inpatient mortality increases by almost 9%, with Medicaid and racial minorities seeing even higher rates. So we can help our neighbors find the water they need in these healthcare deserts, or we deal with the problem when they come to us dying of thirst. You've been listening to the Healthcare Huddle, simplifying the business of healthcare. For more information, show notes, guest profiles, and more, visit EncompassMedical.com and subscribe to the podcast at Apple iTunes, Overcast, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts.